and live in that. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, open to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. I have got a buffet line full of stuff to share with you today. So get ready. Get ready. When Peter released the first letter around 64 AD, he addressed it to God's chosen people who were living as foreigners. And his specific focus in that letter was to comfort and encourage believers who were suffering and being pretty heavily persecuted for their faith by the Roman government and by the Jewish religious leaders. His main strategy for dealing with all that was prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled and set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is real. That's still a strategy, Robert. We're just speaking about the different uh, kind of atmosphere that we live in today and the pressures that are there. The same strategy is there. We need to stay alert and we need to stay quickly obedient to God's promptings. Prepare your mind for action. We'll talk some more about self-control in a few minutes. And then uh, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus is revealed. Always look for Jesus in whatever situation you're in. Always look for Jesus. Find him in the middle of it. Sometimes we feel like we're alone or we're on our own in it. Never true. He's always with us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He's right in the middle of our lives. And when we find him and find what he's doing, then his grace, his empowering presence that enables us to be who we're created to be so we can do what we're created to do is released into our lives. Around three years later, Peter released a second letter, the second Peter, with a very different focus. The second letter was more of a warning for believers then and now about not allowing ourselves to fall into complacency or heresy. Peter was living with an awareness that his days were numbered. Paul had already been executed in Rome. And the when you have turned back strength in your brother's commission that Peter had received from Jesus fueled a desire in him to get some lasting guidelines written down. Peter's second letter emphasized holding fast to the non-negotiable facts of the gospel as Jesus taught it, to the importance of continually growing and maturing in faith, and to the imperative need to resist and reject all who try to distort the truth. As an antidote for any stagnancy of short-sightedness in those aspiring to live a sincerely Christ-following life, the Holy Spirit inspired Peter in his second letter to articulate a clear pathway into a fuller experience with God's divine nature. And as it turns out, it's a reproducible journey of faith that must be added to repeatedly. Second Timothy, uh, Second Peter, chapter one, verse one. Now, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the experiential knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our experiential knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these, through his own glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, through his very great and precious promises, we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires." Sadly, many folks who think of themselves as Christians just expect God to bless them with an abundance of grace and peace. But in his wisdom, God has chosen to connect our ability to recognize, receive, and move in the abundance of his grace and peace to our choices, to our choices to faithfully cultivate and do the relational work of developing a growing base of experiential knowledge with God, with Jesus, and with the Holy Spirit. And to that end, God has infused our lives with his divine dunamis power 
divine dunamis power. That's another way to describe the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. That's that divine dunamis power, and it's inside of us. Giving us the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit provides us with everything we need for life and godliness. But having the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit having us are two very different things. Part of the Holy Spirit having us happens as we choose to embrace and live within the parameters of God's very great and precious promises. As we learn to live in God's promises, the door opens wide for us to participate as a partner, to partake of, to be a companion with, and to have fellowship with God's divine nature. The more of that that we do, the more tenaciously we cling to God with all of our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And the more instinctively we begin uh, to just see the way of escape and take it, the more instinctively we live freer and freer from all the world's corruptive influences. Second Peter 1, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Make every effort to add to your faith. Wait a minute, isn't faith in and of itself enough? I mean, aren't we saved by faith and not by works? And what's all this make every effort to add to your faith business? Well, actually Ephesians 2.8 says, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So we are saved by grace. We're saved by a merciful, redemptive act of God's power coming on and coming into our lives. God's grace ushers us into a journey of through faith. And that word through identifies an entry into faith, not an arrival at a destination of faith. But it all starts with faith. And if you've never given your life to Christ, today's your day to take that first leap of faith. God's grace is here right now. We've been singing about it all morning. Doesn't matter where you are, where you come from, God is here. He's working in our lives. Uh, also, just, I guess, a, a warning that everything's going to be all right song. Get ready for tune nag coming with that one. You, you wake up in the middle of the night and everything's going to be all right. That one gets inside you. That one just stays there. If you've never given your life to Christ, you don't have that feeling. If you've never given your life to Christ, you, don't, you, you can't live in that assurance. But once you do, that's where we get to live. And his free gift of salvation is available. It's here today for the taking and the receiving. But he lets us choose. He never forces us into a relationship. More than once in the Bible, it says, the righteous live by faith. The righteous live by faith. But check this out. Charles Spurgeon rightly taught, God sends every bird their food, but he doesn't throw it into the nest. God sends every bird their food, but he doesn't throw it into the nest. God's desire and plan for us to keep working out our salvation as we walk out our faith. And as we walk out our faith, we'll be able to live led by and in step with the Holy Spirit more consistently. And the more faithfully we choose to walk with God, the more we know his heart and the more we recognize his voice and the more we follow his ways. Jesus called that abiding or remaining in him. And he said, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. In his pastoral letter, James confirmed the connection between faith and fruit-bearing lives. He wrote, what good is it if a person claims to have faith but demonstrates no good works to prove it? Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone might object and say, you have faith, 
I have works. Well, go ahead and prove to me what you have faith about without works. I'll show you my faith by what I do as proof of what I believe. Peter was a man of faith. He was one of the 12 uh, that was in the boat that day as they were going across the storm-tossed sea. And then Jesus came walking to him on the water. And he looked out there and he called, they were afraid at first. And then when they recognized that it was Jesus, he said, Lord, if that's you, tell, us, tell me to come. And Jesus said, come. He didn't say, come, Peter. He just said, come. And I'm telling you, when he said, come, every guy in that boat felt something jump inside of him. But only one got out of the boat. The other 11 stayed in the boat, but Peter got out of that boat. He's a man of faith. He was out of the boat. He walked on the water to Jesus. Then he saw the waves went down. Jesus picked him up, and then he walked with Jesus back over those same waves. It didn't get still until they got back in the boat. But Peter, his faith got him out of that boat walking on that journey. Peter was a man of faith. He's the one that when Jesus was asking, who do you think I am? He said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. There was faith alive in him. And then after that, he had been moving in signs and wonders for many years. There was a season in Peter's life where just his shadow passing over someone healed them and caused demons to come out of them. He was an amazing man of faith. And then he wrote this, make every effort to add to your faith. The New King James says, giving all diligence. The Passion says, devote yourself. The Amplified says, employ every effort. The Message says, don't lose a minute building on what you've been given. And in this passage, the message is actually the closest to what Peter's original readers would have understood as his point. In Greek, make every effort means to use speed, to apply focused energy, to be prompt, to be earnest, and all of those things with an implied sense of urgency. It's not for later, it's for now. This was and continues to be an admonition to deliberately make every effort to accomplish the task of adding to, of fully furnishing and supplying our faith. Make every effort to add to your faith is an invitation into progressive revelation and developmental maturity. It's about being a cooperative, attentive learner and participant in a guided journey into a growing expression of what God intends for faith to be. This Greek word for faith just means basic faith. It's synonymous with trust or belief. It's a conviction of truth about anything. It's a persuasion, a creed, a moral conviction. In the Bible, it describes a reliance on Jesus for salvation. Almost every time you read the word faith in the New Testament, this is the word that's used. And in this particular passage, the Holy Spirit gave Peter a recipe, an ingredients list, if you will, that sets the stage for us to experience transformative faith. In the Bible, lists are often given to us for a reason and a purpose. Many times there's a flow and an order in these lists. It's not just random. The order is important and it establishes a healthy approach that facilitates our spiritual development. And interestingly, many times as we exercise one quality on the list, we usually develop the other qualities on the list too. Intuitively, after putting our faith in Jesus and surrendering the control of our lives to him, we might think that the next thing we need to add to faith is knowledge. We need to know about what this, we've just done. This knowledge is knowing the acts and science of things. But trying to add knowledge without first adding goodness is a mistake. It's a mistake that feeds a religious spirit. And that is a fast track into a self-righteous legalism that almost always leads people to become mean and judgmental zealots really fast. And I think the world has way too many of those already. 
The best antidote for any mean-spirited religiosity about anything, and there's mean-spirited religiosity about a lot of things right now. The best antidote for that is take another dose of goodness. Peter's make every effort to add to your faithless starts with adding goodness. Other translations say moral excellence or virtue. In Greek literature, this word often is referred to as the ability to perform heroic deeds. Whatever word we use, goodness, moral excellence, or virtue, this is the key quality that positions us to access all the other qualities correctly. It's a real miss to skip over it or to diminish the value and necessity of the virtuous moral excellence that comes when goodness is the first thing added to our faith. This goodness does refer to good deeds done openly to bless other people. But these good and beautiful deeds aren't done to be seen by people or to get their praise. In Acts 10, when Peter was talking about Jesus to Cornelius in his household, he said, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Look around the room this morning. Every person in here who's given their life to Christ carries that same anointing. You have been anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then it says Jesus went around doing good for a reason, because God was with him. Like Jesus, our goodness is meant to be practiced for an audience of one. And when goodness is added to our faith, goodness stands out. Jesus said, good trees bear good fruit, bad trees bear bad fruit. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. Jesus also said, let your good deeds shine for all to see so that everyone will praise your Father in heaven. So here's the real test. Does our goodness point people to God or just bring attention to ourselves? Out of true faith, this kind of goodness naturally emerges. And out of this kind of goodness, a proper understanding of God emerges. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, now you're ready for knowledge. Peter learned very well that in order to cultivate a consistent, stable lifestyle in Christ, believers needed to add knowledge to their faith and goodness. Beyond knowing ways faith and goodness work together, this kind of knowledge also adds key insights, it adds discernment, and it adds a proper understanding of truth that becomes experiential knowledge. So it's not just facts and things that we're learning that we have in our head that we can memorize, but it's things we learn about God and then we go do them. Then we go become them. We don't just recite the words on these pages. We're becoming the words of these pages more and more every day. So this knowledge, yes, we need the knowledge. We need to study. Study to show yourself approved. But the approval comes when we take what we've heard and learned and then we find a way to put it into practice. And listen, sometimes when you put it into practice, you don't do it right the first time. Very rarely do we get it right the first time about anything we're learning to do. That's okay. That's okay. Just keep learning. Just keep, learn from what you mistake. Be humble enough to go, mm, that, maybe that wasn't the best way to do that. That didn't work out. There. The fruit from that is not very good. But I know the truth is there. So how do I apply this truth? How do I live in it? God, show me a better way to be that truth, to be that expression of truth. If we fail to add this basic knowledge, then we become what Paul described in Ephesians 4 as children tossed here and there and carried away by every wind and wave of doctrine, which is obviously not very conducive to cultivating healthy spiritual maturity. Faith plus goodness plus knowledge plus self-control. 
Listen, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is control. The opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is control. And even when we've surrendered the control of our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, in the internal conflict between the desires of our flesh and the desires of our spirit, we'll still have to regularly face and deal with self-control issues. Holding ourself in. Holding ourself in. That's the big idea behind this word self-control. We don't want it to just be us anymore. We want it to be him in us. This word self-control speaks of dominion, power, and mastery over ourself that today we might talk about is get a grip on yourself. But listen, this self-control isn't primarily about resisting and not giving in to the desires of our sin nature. So many times we just block it into that category. That's part of it. That's part of it. But that's the wrong focal point because that's old self, self-control. That old you, it's not really as alive as you think it is. It's actually dead. Graham Cook loves to say, why do you keep talking to the dead? It's already gone. It's dead. Be in the living side of things. And what Peter was focused on here is what I call new self, self-control, which is more about what we do than what we avoid. New self, self-control that we add to our faith is more about what we do than what we avoid. No matter what our feelings or emotions tell us at any given moment, when we live by faith, we lived in a fixed position of strength, not weakness. And it's from that place of strength that we can exercise and increase our new self, self-control. New self, self-control helps us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter of our faith. And fortunately for us, this self-control is included as part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So that means if you've given your life to Christ and the Holy Spirit is in you, you have the fruit of the Holy Spirit in you, not just part of it, all of it, and all of it that you'll ever need. All of the self-control that you will ever need for any circumstance, any situation is already inside of you. You don't have to pray and say, Lord, give me more self-control if you've given your life to Christ because you have the Holy Spirit in you. And what you might want to pray is, how do I make a draw on that? How do, I, how do I connect myself to what you have put inside of my life? How do I live in that more? So rather than just doing my old things and doing the way I used to, like the testimony we had this morning, rather than giving in to the old things, it's like, no, I'm going a new way. I'm speaking into that thing. I'm not, I'm not being afraid of that anymore. I'm living free from that. That's new self, self-control. And so we ask the Lord to help us make a draw upon the self-control he's deposited in us. Faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, that gets us ready for perseverance perseverance. And did you know that in Greek, this perseverance literally means abiding under. When I think about perseverance, that's not the first picture that comes to mind when I think of perseverance. When I'm thinking about perseverance, I'm thinking about grit your teeth and hold on, stay through, push through, get through it. But digging into this word, somewhat surprisingly, it's actually not grit your teeth and hold on. It's rest and be held. Rest and be held. This perseverance does describe a cheerful, hopeful endurance and constancy. That's a, that's a settled place inside of us that God's got me. He's never going to let me go. He's got me no matter what. He's got me all the time. And the roots of this word is the secret for having it. To stay under. To follow. To remain in a given state, place, or relation. This perseverance isn't based on our willpower. Instead, it's based on choosing to live in the shadow and the shelter of the Most High, which is what we talked about a couple weeks ago in Psalm 91. 
rather than trying to just hold on or get out of a tough situation, perseverance actually helps us keep learning the lessons God is teaching us in those hard times. Perseverance stirs with us the ability to, to focus beyond the current pressures and the difficult circumstances because we know that the challenges and obstacles we face always give God the opportunity to show us more of his power and more of his grace in timely, real, and tangible ways. Perseverance is another outworking of Paul's idea from Romans 8 that said, stay focused on the glory to be revealed in us rather than getting lost and bogged down in our present sufferings. Perseverance also reveals the soil condition of our hearts. Jesus said our hearts can be like hard, rocky, thorny, or good soil. And then he said the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, same word, by persevering, produce a crop. James 1, 4 says perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So by God's design, we all have a choice. We can work with perseverance or we can work against perseverance, but there's no going around it. Perseverance must finish its work. Continuing to practice perseverance all the way to the end of our lives is one more proof of the genuineness of our faith. We just keep choosing to stay under. We just keep choosing to follow the Lord. The converse is also true. Failing to regularly add this kind of perseverance to faith usually leads to people drifting away from living out their faith. And what one generation tolerates, the next generation often takes to excess. So as we continue faithfully practicing perseverance, not only do we benefit, but we also directly sow into the interest of the next generation. We, we sow into the next generation having a desire to live and serve and honor God because of what they see in our lives. After highlighting the importance of adding goodness, knowledge, self-control, and perseverance to our faith, Peter highlighted goodness, or godliness, godliness. One commentator wrote, godliness brings us into the sanctifying presence of God. Godliness brings the sanctifying presence of God into all the experiences of our life. Scottish theologian William Barclay said, godliness is one of the great and almost untranslatable Greek words. Godliness describes reverence both towards God and people. In other words, at the heart of godliness, love God, love people. Godliness is an attitude of mind which respects people and honors God. It's reverence towards the one and only God and the kind of life that he would wish us to lead. This Greek word literally means well worship, well worship. So it's the desire to love and to obey and to please God in all we say and all we do, all we think, because we're living every day all the time with a growing, stronger sense of God's presence in and on our lives. Godliness helps us live above the petty things of life as well as above the passions and pleasures that people far too often allow to control their lives. Living out this godliness is not an easy path. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul wrote, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Godliness is a passion word that speaks to piety, devotion, holiness, faithfulness, loyalty. Godliness uses God as our reference point and feeds it a desire within us to reflect his image well. 
While we do need to constantly rely on the help of the Holy Spirit, to move in godliness still requires intentional efforts on our part. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, train yourselves to be godly. In other words, it doesn't happen by accident. Train yourselves to be godly. And in that letter to Timothy, Paul actually compared it to physical training. And he added, godliness has benefits for this life and the life to come. Later in that same letter, 1 Timothy 6, 16, he tells us godliness must be pursued. That pursued means to continuously press hard after in order to make it a habit. Godliness isn't supposed to be a place we just drop into from time to time. It's to become who we are, how we act, as habitually how we see ourselves and show up in the world. And that word pursuit also lets us know that godliness is more about continuing to walk in it rather than arriving at some destination point, like getting the badge. Oh, I got the godliness badge, I can move on. No, we keep walking in it, we keep pursuing it. Paul did caution Timothy that some people would attempt to use godliness as a means for financial gain. And he said other people would take on a form of godliness and act religious while denying and rejecting the power that produces true godliness. And in regards to both, Paul's instruction was, have nothing to do with people like that. As we manifest a lifestyle of godliness, that naturally flows over into brotherly kindness, which in the best case refers to the kind of love that people share as families. But more specifically, what Peter was addressing here is a kind of love that we as believers are to have for one another. Although we're members of different families, we embrace our identity, we embrace our place as part of the family of God. And as part of the family of God, we choose to invest our lives in each other as part of the family of God. We, we give ourselves into finding uh, creative, encouraging, useful, beneficial ways to share the Father's love with one another. Brotherly kindness is a fervent, practical caring for others. A fervent, practical caring for others. The Greek word used here is Philadelphia, which at its core is a word about belonging, belonging to something more than ourselves. Brotherly kindness, Philadelphia, is also about being in healthy life-giving and life-receiving friendships with other people, rather than just keeping to ourselves by maintaining superficial, surface-level relationships. Yes, it's more blessed to give than receive. But at this point in my journey, I've also learned that the very best givers need to be good receivers, too. There's been people that we've known through the years and walked with through the years. They can give, 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 give. But when you try to do something for them, they won't take it. And I'm telling you, that's not healthy. That's not healthy. It's good to give, but we've got to be able to receive. There's a real benefit when we find that balance. Faith plus goodness plus knowledge plus self-control plus perseverance plus godliness plus brotherly kindness. And as we're practicing each of these traits, then we'll find ourselves ready to give and receive agape love, unconditional, sacrificial, perfect, God-like love. A precept Austin Post says, agape love may involve emotion, but it must always involve action. Biblical agape love is the love of choice, the love of serving with humility, the highest kind of love, the noblest kind of devotion, the love of the will. Agape love is not impulsive love. It is decisive love. In a conversation at the Last Supper that Peter never forgot, Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. Now, in and of itself, that would have been transformative. That would have been a profound thing to say. A new command I give you, 
love one another. But then Jesus said this next, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. A New Living Translation, Life Application Bible footnote says, how can we love others as Jesus loves us? By helping, even when we're too busy. By giving sacrificially. By devoting energy to others' welfare rather than our own. By absorbing hurts from others without complaining, fighting back, or seeking revenge. These are just a few examples. And this kind of loving is hard to do. And that's why people notice it when we do it. Look at verse 8. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your experiential knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he's nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sin. I want to unpack these verses some more next weekend. But this weekend, let me just reemphasize that our faith must go beyond what we profess to believe. It must become a dynamic part of who we are and of all we do. I love how the Message Bible says it. With these qualities active and growing in your lives, no grass will grow under your feet and no day will pass without its reward as you mature in your experience of Jesus. I love that phrase. As you mature in your experience of Jesus. And about possessing these qualities in increasing measures, rather than thinking of these qualities as a badge to get or in a linear fashion, these are like character traits that flow together with, and it's like points in an expanding upward circle. I found that God's ways tend to be more circular than linear. And he loves to work in seasons and cycles. These qualities lead into each other. And when we first get to the agape love place, then we're ready to start another lap and we add to our faith more goodness and we circle back and we just keep increasing that farther up, farther into faith. When I was talking about these add to your faith qualities and just briefly highlighting them, maybe as I was talking about one of those, something resonated inside of you as I'm describing it. That could be a clue of somewhere that God is working in your life right now. Something he's wanting to quicken and add and have you add into your faith. Of course, God's not limited to just these qualities. And most of the time, he's actually working within us on a variety of things all at the same time. God very rarely just does one thing at a time in us. He's got multiple things going on inside of us as he's working to draw us and transform us more and more into his image. In all that work, God is all in committed to leading us on a clear pathway into a reproducible journey of faith that expands our experiential knowledge of him and his ways. His heart is for us to be able to more and more effectively and more and more productively access and apply his divine nature as a normal and a natural part of our daily lives. Look at verse 10. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall and you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's more here too, but for now, don't miss this. What we do every day matters. What we do every day matters. Because of that, we each need to stay engaged in living encounters with God and in living encounters with his ways. Not only will that strengthen and deepen the expression of our faith day by day, those choices we make now 
also echo into eternity. And the choices we make now have an effect on the welcome that we will receive in heaven when this life is finished. With that in mind, let's keep doing all we can to live for that well done. Live for that well done by continually making efforts, every effort to add to our faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and agape love. Which in the last sentence of this second letter, Peter described like this. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your grace that captured us, that captured our hearts, that drew us to yourself and, and, and won our hearts, that we, would, that we would give ourselves to you. But then I thank you, that's not the end, that's the beginning. That's the beginning. And then this through faith, you just, you just love to teach us and grow us and increase. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be satisfied. Not one of us would be satisfied right now. This is what I know and this is where I'm at and that's good enough. No. No, we're still on the planet. There's still more to do. There's still more to add to our faith. There's more goodness. There's more knowledge. There's more perseverance. There's more self-control. There's more to add in, more godliness, more brotherly kindness, more agape love for us to live and move in on earth as we will in heaven. And so I pray, Lord, you won't let us just settle for a perseverance that's just gritting our teeth and holding on until Jesus comes back. But we'll walk out of perseverance that's a daily surrender, a daily following after, a daily choosing to abide in the shelter of the Most High. And that will uh, allow us to cooperate with the maturing work that perseverance is doing inside of us. Lord, find us easy to work with. Keep breaking off the, the lies that we believe that, that make it hard for us to trust you. Keep breaking off the lies we believed about ourselves that cause us to think of ourselves as unworthy. No, you've chosen us. We're chosen. We're precious. We are the delight of your eyes and you delight in giving good gifts to your sons and daughters. Let us live in that truth, in that reality, in that expectancy so that that we'll just find ourselves walking with you like Jesus did. And because you're with us, we just find ourselves doing good things. Not just the good thing of coming to church once a week, but it's who we are every day. It's how we show up in our homes. It's how we show up when we go to the store. It's how we show up when we work or go to school. Living beautiful, good deeds every day for your namesake and for your glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right.